Let's go to John chapter 20 and verse 31 and remind ourselves why we have the Gospel of John. Why that John would write the things that he did. Why we know the name Melchus. Why we know other details. They're given to us for a reason. We don't know if there was one man or more than one man that went and checked out Melchus to find out if he had an ear removed in the Garden of Gethsemane one night and then had it repaired in one night. Because it's there for this reason. John chapter 20 and verse 30, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Amen, amen and amen. That's why we have John. That's why we have John 18. And so let's turn back to the 18th chapter of this gospel, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They called him Jesus of Nazareth, a derogatory term, just identifying him by his place where he had been raised. But we know him as the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the Messiah, the Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. John chapter 18. Let me read the first 11 verses which is the first section, his arrest in Gethsemane. You know where we've been. We don't, we're not going to go back and remind you where we've been, but chapters 12 through 17 have indeed been wonderful, but they are over. He has taken care of his apostles, and now he boldly wants to go forward in the work that the Father gave him to do, and that's to lay down his life for us. And so he's going to go forth, and he's going to go forth, and he's going to meet them, and identify himself for them, to take him, arrest him, try him, torture him, and put him on the cross for you and me. Credible. Captain of our salvation. This is the author of our salvation. This is the champion of those that have a cause and a case to be delivered. We created our own desperate case, and he delivered us from it. Amen. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden, into the which he entered, and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Amen. Then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Melchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. 
The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Amen and amen. amen. Every step of the way, the Lord Jesus Christ is ready and willing and eager to drink the cup the Father gave him. Yes, he confirmed the Father's will that there wasn't an alternative in the Garden of Gethsemane as recorded in the other three Gospels, but he is going to drink the cup that the Father gave him. And before this day is over and we lift a cup ourselves, we shall consider about five cups. The legendary cup of fables, Arthurian legends, and the Roman Catholic Church and other churches in which they call it the Holy Grail or the Holy Chalice. We shall consider literal cups that held the content of the fruit of the vine and the literal cup that was the cup of the everlasting covenant. And we will consider the cup of his sufferings, which is the cup right here. And we will consider one more cup that we get to drink from because of him drinking his cup. And that's the cup of salvation. Right. Psalm 116 and verse 30, 13. The cup of salvation. So five cups. Can you hold on for just a little while so that we can get to the cups? John chapter 18. This is the first section, his arrest in Gethsemane. It's got four parts. The first three verses are Judas betraying Jesus. We're not told the details that the other Gospels give us in certain ways. Jesus confronts the mob in verses 4 through 7. Jesus delivers his apostles in 8 and 9 from that mob. And Peter assaulted Melchus. And Jesus heals his ear and tells Peter, you're getting things out of order again. I want to go to the cross. Don't hinder me. Peter drew a sword, and we know that the angels would have drawn their swords, and if we had been angels, we probably would have drawn our swords. But they didn't, because Jesus held the one group back, and he corrected Peter for his error, because he was going to drink the cup that the Father had given him. By way of introduction to this chapter, let me just say this briefly. John chapter 18 is quite different from John chapters 12 through 17 that are full of instruction for the apostles. There's not as much instruction in John chapter 18. It's more a historical recording of the events leading toward the cross. And so there's a difference. You know, when you look at it, if you've got a red letter edition Bible, you can tell by the number of red words you have in John 18 versus John 17, 16, 15, 14, and backwards, where it's almost entirely red because it's not Jesus teaching. It's recording the historical events pertaining to his arrest and trial before the Jews and then before Pilate. Chapter, for, John's gospel is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you go to John chapter 1, there is so much doctrine in John chapter 1. Right. right from the very first words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, without Him was anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And it just keeps going on. And the word was made manifest and dwelt among us. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. There's so much doctrine. It's not. There was a man in the wilderness of Judea named John the Baptist. John's different. John chapter 3. All we are told about Nicodemus is to get an introduction for 36 verses of doctrine in John chapter 3, of the Lord Jesus Christ teaching, and then John the Baptist commenting on that teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle John writing about it. A lot of doctrine, a lot of instruction, a lot of lessons, a lot of promises, a lot of prophecies, a lot of warnings. More 
than the other Gospels. John 18, though, is a change from that. And John 18 is more of the events and less of his lessons and warnings to his apostles. So I want you to notice that difference. And uh, that could be expanded upon, but it's not worth it. The second point I want to make is that I trust God. I trust Jehovah, my Lord and my God. And I trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us four Gospels. The four Gospels are different. There are going to be things that John runs over and ignores that the other Gospels are going to pick up. Sometimes I will mention them, and sometimes I may not. Because I don't want to preach to you a harmony of the Gospels. If you want a harmony of the Gospels, then go online and see what goods you get from picking from one of the thousand variations that are out there. A harmony of the Gospels is either of two choices. Four columns, and I have one in my outline for you to click on, a simple one. It's four columns showing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the, the horizontal lines, so it's rows and columns. It could be a spreadsheet. And the lines are the events of Jesus' life. You know, Matthew might have one that the other three don't have. One event might be recorded by all four Gospels. One event might just be in John and not in the other three. And so you create this table that shows a harmony of all Gospel accounts. That's one way of doing it, and that's usually called a synopsis. Or you rewrite the Gospels by taking the pieces of them and putting them together so you end up with this longer Gospel that doesn't leave any event out and uses the fullest description of that event in whatever gospel account that it is. And so then you end up with a new gospel that God didn't inspire. Just think about it. I trust God. I read, you read 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and you don't get too bent out of shape about 1st and 2nd Chronicles, do you? When you're reading 1 Kings, are you constantly going over to 1 and 2 Chronicles to find out the differences there? You don't do that. I'm not going to do that in preaching through John 18, 19, and through the rest of this gospel. A full harmony of the gospels can be an interesting study, but it's usually more an intellectual curiosity than it is a faith and love-building exercise. I believe what John wrote by the inspiration of the Spirit in chapter 20 that his record is sufficient to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If I'm asked questions and I want more, or if I want more details about some of the events, I can go to Matthew, Mark, or Luke to fill in those details. But I do not want us to get so involved in examining the bark on every individual tree that we don't see the beauty of the forest. And the forest, in this case, is the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't need Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John can convert a soul. For conversion, for seeing Jesus, for believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, I have John's testimony by the Holy Spirit that his gospel is enough. I will refer to the other gospels because there are some things that have informative information helpful information, and so we will do that from time to time. A complete reconciliation of all the facts in the four Gospels 
Yes, it may lead to overall understanding of a timeline and the factual details, but it may miss the very one that we want to see clearly without being distracted by too many details. The Gospels are read individually by 99% of all Bible readers. Very few limit themselves to reading a harmony of the Gospels. They read Matthew, and they're blessed by it. Then they read Mark, and they're blessed by it. Do you think that Luke was sufficient to convert Theophilus? <laughs> Luke said that he had written down everything that uh, there was to be worried about to Theophilus. And he said so again in Acts chapter 1. And yet we know that Luke doesn't have everything that Matthew, Mark, and John have. But I just want to get that out of the way. You may wish I'd slow down and, and, and put a table in your hands of a harmony of the Gospels. There's so many of them out there. Go pick one. I don't think it'll help you very much. But if, and I just want to, my, my final warning. It's more the carnal mind that worries about a harmony of the Gospels than the one that just reads the Gospel of John and wants to see the Lord Jesus Christ. John is sufficient by itself for you to know everything you need to love Jesus Christ. So is Luke. So is Mark. So is Matthew. I've got that off my chest now, and I hope a little bit off your minds. We could take forever in John 18 if we wanted to start worrying about how the Jews kept time and how the Romans kept time and why it says that Jesus was crucified at such a time and in one gospel and Jesus was crucified at such a time in another gospel. Do you know what? I don't care. I don't care. I know he was crucified. I know approximately how long he was on the cross. And all I want to do is see him on that cross and know why he's on that cross. To pay for my sins. Amen. I don't want to fuss with all those details. Now all those details can be fussed with and other men have fussed with them. But I fear... I fear that the flesh and the carnal mind is the part of us that worries more about those than just seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and resolving our hearts and having Him resolve our hearts by the Spirit to love Him and serve Him more perfectly. No one in here cares about details in God's Word more than I do. But I also want to try to help you keep those details in their proper place. I want details that are just pointing me to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't really care about how Romans kept time, and I don't really care about how Jews kept time. I know that the Bible is absolutely perfect, whether I'm reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And Jesus was crucified for my sins by the plan of Almighty God, and I was chosen in Him before the world began, and that's what gets me excited. And I want to see Him on the cross saying, It is finished, and by faith, commending His Spirit into the hands of God. Enough on that. I'm sorry about those wasted minutes. You know, when you, when you look at John 18, you start to run into some of those differences. What we've had in chapters 14 through 17 are words that are not found at all in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So we have a special gospel. And we will make reference to the others. Trust me, you're going to hear it very quickly. But we're not going to worry too much by spending as much time in Matthew 26, Mark 14 and Luke 22, as we are in John 18, or half the audience will not even know what we covered. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden, into the which he entered, and his disciples. When Jesus had spoken these words, 
That is telling us that the next event after his prayer in John 17 is the Garden of Gethsemane. There's no gap there. It's just a nice little point on the timeline for us to see what is transpiring in Jesus' last few hours. You know, we're blessed in the Gospel of John because we have the Last Supper in chapter 13, which is what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have in chapters 26, 14, and 22 of their respective Gospels. But you notice how they just leap from Jesus telling Pilate, you're going to betray me this night before the cock crows three times. You're going to betray me three times before the cock crows. And the next sentence is the Garden of Gethsemane. They leap completely over chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 that we've had the pleasure and the privilege of God inspiring and preserving to us in the Gospel of John. I hope you saw that if you took a look at either one, any one of those three other accounts of the Last Supper. It just leaps all of what we just had. But here John is telling us when he had said these words, when Jesus had spoken these words, the next event. So we know where to stick these four chapters in. It's between telling Peter, which are the last words of chapter 13, but we have 14, 15, 16, and 17, which we've just covered. Our great high priest had ended his teaching and prayer. Now it was time for sacrifice. A priest gave his life to teaching, to prayer, and to sacrifices. Jesus taught, 14, 15, and 16. Jesus prayed, 17. Jesus is now going to offer a sacrifice because he is the great high priest. And it's going to be the sacrifice of himself. The next clause, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron. He went forth. Isn't that wonderful? They didn't come and get him. They didn't come and find him. He went and found them. He went forth. He will drink. He would drink. He was intent to drink the cup that his father gave him. Yes, you know that he asked in the Garden of Gethsemane by the other gospel accounts, Father, if it be possible, could this cup pass from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And once the father sent him an angel and strengthened him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was ready to drink that cup. Let's get to it. Remember what he told Judas in John 13? In our gospel here, that thou doest, do quickly. <clears throat> Get to it, Judas. I'm, I'm looking forward to the cross. Don't hold me up by dilly-dallying here at the Last Supper, you devil. Go and get your mob and bring them into the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll be there. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron. Now, we could talk about the brook Cedron and tell you that it's Kydron in the Old Testament and all the wonderful stories about the brook Kydron in the Old Testament. I'm not going to do that because I really don't care. This is an identifying mark for anyone later. What did John say? These things are written that ye might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You are never going to find the brook Cedron. You're not going to cross it. And you're not going to drink from it. You don't know where it is. You don't know how close it was to Jerusalem except from atlases. And it was between Bethany and Jerusalem it was between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem because it doesn't really mean that much. But to someone of that time, when John, a Jew and a minister to the circumcision, released his gospel, there would have been people that knew Cedron and would have known 
where the Garden of Gethsemane was in relationship to it in Jerusalem, and that to get from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, you had to cross that brook. I could put a a map in your hand, but it wouldn't mean very much. What means more? In this clause, he went forth. He went forth. That's what means something. It's just telling us where he is, that on the progression from Jerusalem, where he had the Last Supper, to the Garden of Gethsemane, he crossed this brook Cedron, which is also called Kydron in the Old Testament. And yes, there are some interesting stories about it. David had to cross this brook when Absalom chased him, like Judas, betrayed him out of the city of Jerusalem when he was its rightful king. But that's a distraction. And that's trying to spiritualize Cedron here when it's a factual piece of map information about where Jesus went. But he went forth. He knew the hour had come in which he could glorify God. Remember he had said in John 12, the hour has come. And we were a few hours away in John chapter 12. We were actually a couple days away, or a few days away in John chapter 12. The hour has come. He was looking forward to that hour. His spirit was troubled, but he was ready and willing to do it. And now he goes forth. He was intent to do his father's will, and he was intense about it. In spite of his agonizing prayer, his face was set to go to Jerusalem. He was all business with the apostles fully taught and his father's will confirmed in the Garden of Gethsemane. With a far-sighted view of his reward, he ignored earthly pain. Do you know how the Bible says that we're nearsighted when, we're, when we get too wrapped up in this world? Right. He was not too wrapped up in this world. He was far-sighted to see the joy that was set before him in the heavens if he would go to the cross and fulfill the will of God. He voluntarily entered the Colosseum of the Jews and Gentiles to do battle by suffering. He could have drawn his sword. His angels could have marched into that Colosseum with him. The apostles could have come in that Colosseum if he had given them the spirit on the other side of the cross, but he didn't because he was going to do it alone. And he did it alone. And he walked into the Colosseum of Jews and Gentiles. I call it a Colosseum because that's where they got together for their sport to destroy the Son of God. It is what Psalm chapter 2 says about him. The rulers of the people and the, and the Gentiles got together to try to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. Our champion went forth. He came out and stood there and let them destroy him. They tried to make him a king in John chapter 6 and put a crown on his head. And he resisted the crown. But here they're going to put him on a cross. And he allowed them to do that. Because he had come for that purpose. But I'll tell you, he was crowned with glory and honor in heaven. And he is king. And he is crowned. And he's king of kings. Where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples? This garden was Gethsemane, which the other gospels tell us. He knew that Judas knew that this was a common retreat. And knowing my Lord, he had already told Judas and the, and the apostles where they would be later that night. No problem. The curse came by Satan in another garden called Eden. And our redemption began in this garden called Gethsemane. The greater darkness of a garden did not deter the champion of our desperate case. He went into that dark garden. You know, a garden with trees and other shrubs and bushes would block any light that there was out there. And by now we're 9 o'clock at the earliest. We're midnight at the latest or something like that in our timing of this timeline. And Jesus went right into that dark garden, our champion. 
our Savior. You think about it with him. He's been talking on the dark road from Jerusalem to Bethany with his apostles. And now he's going into the Garden of Gethsemane. He entered with the eleven, and then he took three apart and prayed with those three, asking them to watch and pray. He asked the eight to watch and pray. Then he asked the three to watch and pray, and they slept. He exposed their weakness in spite of their oaths to the contrary so that they could see his courage. They couldn't even stay awake. They're going to flee in just a few minutes, but he's going to stay there. He's going to deliver them, and he's going to turn himself over to the mob with Judas. John passed over his agonizing prayer to his father and the sleeping apostles to move right on, and we're going to do that in this particular case. We're not going to go back and read Matthew, Mark, or Luke about Jesus agonizing and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. John, for his purpose of exalting Jesus as the Son of God, did not do that. I trust the Bible. I know there's other Gospels, just like I know there's Chronicles when I read Kings. But when I read Kings, I don't get all worked up to go find every verse in Chronicles that matches. I want to see the account the way the Lord gave it to us, and then I get just as excited when I read Chronicles and don't check Kings. And I, there's four accounts. Now the four accounts tells us that by repetition, the, the Lord is telling us my son's life and my son's death is important. Right. So since I've put it together in the canon of Scripture, read it four times. To every, to, to every time you read Romans, read four times about my son. Right. And I like that. Right. And if... I'll say this for about the third time. If you want a synopsis, just type in Harmony of the Gospels in a Google search box or Synopsis of the Gospels. Don't go for Synoptic. Don't read about the Synoptic Gospel. Just look for Synopsis of the Gospels and uh, you can have a chart. And I've put one on the outline. It'll be there in the next 24 hours. And you can click on it and see rows and columns of the events of Jesus' life and which account has them. And when you get down to John chapter 14... It's all by itself. John 15, all by itself. John 16, all by itself. John 17, all by itself. Because that's why John is special. And for those of you that consider John your favorite book of the Bible, I have no argument with you. Verse 2, Judas also which betrayed him knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. So it was very common. They knew how to, Judas knew how to get there. Judas knew the entrances to the, this garden, this little park, whatever it was there, near the Mount of Olives, near Bethany, because Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem, didn't have a place there usually, and he would go out to the Mount of Olives and spend time there recovering from being from, with the crowds in the city of Jerusalem, and Judas knew that. Of course, we could go back and look at all the times that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and was in a garden and was taking rest, and we're not going to do that. We're going to go to verse 3. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus knew where Jesus visited when in the area, so he took the arresting mob to him. Notice that it was the chief priests, the representatives of God, in God's religion, The representatives of God in God's religion, when I say God, I mean Jehovah's religion. It was the representatives of him in that religion 
that had helped raise the band of men for Judas Iscariot. They had conspired with him to have Judas turn Jesus over to them in private so they wouldn't have to face the people because there was a lot of common people that did believe Jesus Christ was at least a prophet, if not the Messiah and Son of God. These chief priests and then the Pharisees, what are the Pharisees? They're a denomination of the Jews' religion, a denomination of it. There's the Sadducees that were the liberals, and there were the Pharisees that were the conservatives. So it's the conservatives that want to kill Jesus. See, Sadducees don't care as much. And when you meet liberals today, liberals don't really care because they will agree to disagree about anything. But conservatives are going to fight you. And so the conservatives hated Jesus the most. Jesus had by far his greatest problems with the Pharisees, not with the Sadducees. And so will the Apostle Paul have his most trouble with the Pharisees and not the Sadducees. But notice, it's the representatives of God, it's the ministry, it's the Pharisees, the most conservative, it's the fundamentalists that hated Jesus the most. And when you speak about the Lord Jesus Christ or when our website says certain things, it isn't the liberals in, in many cases that aren't as offended as the, the Pharisees are, the conservatives are. Just remember, it's, it's not the cutthroats. There wasn't a prison break so that murderers could get out of prison and go track Jesus down the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the religious leadership. And it's a warning and a reminder for us that those that hate the Lord Jesus Christ the most are oftentimes the ones that speak of God and his things the most. It's a lesson for us. It's not hard to raise a band of men, grow a church, or find friends if you oppose godliness. Jesus said, you don't believe me because I tell you the truth. If I were to tell you a lie, you would believe me. And don't we know that by looking at the fastest growing churches in America? Christ-hating Jews of that time are not much different from truth-hating liberals and conservatives today. We can't speculate about how much this band of men and officers were, but the other Gospels say it was a great multitude. If we were wanting to play in the Roman language of Latin or the Greek language of the New Testament, we might come up with a cohort, which was a group of Roman soldiers smaller than a legion, of about 500 or 1,000. And most of them want to go with a band that size, 500 to 1,000. In the others, it's called a great multitude. Here it's called a band of men. We, can't, we don't know how many it was, but it was large enough to be called a great multitude coming out for the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about a multitude doing something so evil, we, re, our, we remember that in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 2, that we're commanded never to follow a multitude to do evil. Right. The majority means nothing except it doesn't have the truth. The majority's never had the truth. So we don't follow the majority. We don't want to follow the many that are going in the wide gate and the broad way that leads to destruction. We want to find the few that are going in the straight gate and the narrow way that leads to life. And a straight gate is spelled how? Is it straight because someone put a level or a string on it and made it straight? Or is it straight because it's S-T-R-A-I-T, meaning it's restrictive like a straight jacket? That's what we want to be looking for. And so it's Jesus with 11, and soon they'll disappear 
So it'll be one against maybe 500. That sounds about right. That sounds okay. One against 500. Do you remember some of our history slides that we've presented and shown what independent Baptists are in the world and independent Baptists that understand the truth? As it gets narrowed down, we'll accept those odds. Thank you, Lord. Still better than Noah. The princes of this world, from these officers all the way up to Pilate, knew nothing. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 tell us that had the princes of this world know who they were messing with, they would not have touched the Lord of glory. They did not know him and they do not know us. And thus, my frequent mentions of paparazzi and where they would be today in Greenville County if they knew. But they don't know, so they, they're nowhere but chasing their own little soap bubbles. But the, the Bible wants us to know that if the princes of this world, including this mob, had known who they were dealing with, they would not have come after the Lord of glory. And no matter the fact that he blew them backwards by just his I am he onto the ground, it still didn't help them any more than ten plagues helped Pharaoh in Egypt. Because when God blinds men, he blinds them blinder than anything will penetrate until they're regenerated. Or God uses them like he used Balaam's ass. Blindness is terrible. And we want to beg God to save us from any blindness. Wherever we are blind about your truth, about our lives, open our eyes that we might see and our ears that we might hear and our hearts that we might understand and turn from our wicked ways and follow thee perfectly. We confess that we are capable of greater blindness than any. Do not blind us, O Lord. Show us your word and we'll follow it. Show us our error and we'll flush it. In Jesus' glorious name. They come thither with lanterns and torches and weapons because it's a dark night. We were told way back in John 13 that it was already night when Jesus sent Judas out of that supper. Their weapons were foolish, but they had no knowledge of his numbers or resistance, so they're coming prepared because they knew that there were people that loved the Lord Jesus and he had some very close followers and they might raise arms against them, so they come with weapons. The other Gospels tell us those weapons were swords and staves. So see, I'm referring to the other Gospels to help you understand the word weapons. When truth cannot be resisted by arguments, enemies resort to murder. If you can't overwhelm an argument, then kill them. If you can't bring forth evidence, hate them. If you don't know as much Bible as he does, then just despise them. That's cool. That's how you can be a scorner and be very low on the totem pole of God's respect. Right down there below a fool because scorners are worse than fools. I think of Stephen when I read this. Stephen could not be resisted. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 6 and verse 10, this deacon that they had just ordained to take care of widows' tables, he could take on the Jews, any number of them, any any degree of ability by them and refute them, and they could not refute what he said. So what they do to him? They stone him to death. It's very simple. The Roman Catholic Church has done that. They don't care that there were answers that those martyrs could give that showed the Bible refuting their religion. They would just kill them anyway. 
we read about very few conversions as we read about the martyrs dying. Because if you're blind enough to kill a Christian that has never raised his voice or his fist or a sword and you were willing to kill him, that shows you're so blind there's no potential of you being converted except in the rare exception. By his voice alone, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to throw them all backward into the ground so their weapons are of little value. Jesus rebuked their show of force. He said, I've been in your temple and I've been in your city. Why didn't you get me? I was right there. I had no weapons. You saw me. My men had no weapons. All we had were a few scrolls. Why didn't you take me then? He asked them in the other gospel accounts. Why didn't you take me then? He said, because this is your hour. That was my hour to preach. Now this is your hour, and it's the hour of darkness. Mm -hmm. Satan now has control of the nation and has control of the events for the next few hours. And so now it's your time. And that, that was the explanation that the Lord Jesus Christ had for it. They could not take him back then. It was not their time, and he avoided them. Remember, they, they led him to the brow of a hill to cast him headlong in the city of Nazareth. And he walked through the midst of them and went his way. John chapter 8, after the woman taken in adultery, they wanted to kill him, and he hid himself in the multitude and disappeared. He could do that whenever he wanted to, but not look what he's doing now in this dark garden, which would be the best for hiding instead of a city in the daytime. He's walking forward to meet them. Who are you looking for in here? What in the world did you bring 500 people in this garden for? Whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. Here I am. I am he. This is our Lord. It was his time to lay down his life, and it was a time for Satan to be able to do what Satan thought that he ought to do against Jesus and bruise his heel. While Jesus, by dying on the cross, bruised his head with a fatal wound. This is our Lord and Savior. This is John 18. It is different from John 17, 16, 15, and 14. It's glorious in a different way by describing these events to us. We come to the next section of the first part. His arrest in Gethsemane. Now it's Jesus confronting the mob. Verse 4, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him. No, I'm going to back up. I'm sorry, let's go back into that third verse again about uh, Judas and the band of officers and chief priests and Pharisees coming with lanterns, torches, and weapons. It was the time of darkness for their advantage right now, and the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Because in Zechariah 13 and verse 7, it says, a sword would be raised against my shepherd. So there, there had to be swords. And so there were swords. And though it's called weapons here, the other gospels tell us it included swords because the prophecy said so, and so did Psalm 22 about the sword coming against the Lord Jesus Christ. Their weapons, their weapons. Oh, they're going to protect themselves. In opposing the Messiah, they're going to protect themselves with weapons. How much good did their weapons do in 70 AD? Just irritated the Romans enough to commit to leveling that city and tearing up its very foundations and crucifying so many of them all the way around that city. Their weapons did them no good. What good will their weapons do when Jesus Christ comes and speaks again, I am he? I want you to be thinking about that. If his I am he in a state of humiliation could blow them backward, 500 men, 
that are prepared for conflict in a dark garden and put them on their backs on the ground, what will it be like when he descends from heaven with a shout? With his mighty angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It'll be glorious. Look at Isaiah 54. Keep your fingers open at John 18, but come over to Isaiah 54 just for me to share a verse with you. (coughs) Don't worry about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to take care of himself. And don't worry about you. He's going to take care of you as well. I want to just read you a verse about weapons. You'll like this verse when I finish reading it to you. Isaiah 54 and verse 17. Isaiah 54 and verse 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. You like that verse? Hold on to that verse. If there's anything that intimidates or scares you, hold on to that verse. Learn that verse. Memorize that verse. Have that verse framed and put on a wall in your house. No weapon, no tongue. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. All you need to do to have that verse apply to you is be a servant of the Lord. Whatever the Lord has asked you to do in your life, do it. Back to verse 4 of John 18. Jesus, therefore... The band's coming. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? So here we have the second went forth. We had it in verse 1. We have it in verse 4. Jesus is going forth to meet the mob. Just like telling Judas, Judas, whatever you got to do, go do it. And he sends him out of the Last Supper. He wants to get this show on the road. And this show is the ruin of the devil, the overthrowing of this world system, and our exaltation as the sons of God. The glorious salvation that we have in Jesus Christ by his death. And he's willing to go there, and he's willing to go there quickly. John gave us insight right here in verse 4, and a reminder that Jesus was very aware of his soon death. Most people that die aren't aware that they're going to die, and I've I've explained that to you before. Soldiers who lay down their lives for their country don't do it voluntarily the way Jesus did because their lives are taken from them by surprise. They go into every battle expecting and hoping that they're going to kill the other guy before the other guy kills them. Jesus had no expectation like that. He went in to lay down his life. You know, the pilot of one of our, uh, one of our fighters or one of our bombers or uh, a missile you know, a, a plane with missiles, he's flying along and he's got a task to do, either to shoot down opposing aircraft or to hit some target on the ground. And when, when another plane comes up behind him and he has lock on, he wasn't planning for that. When he left that morning, he wasn't planning on being locked on. He was planning on locking on some other targets. And it's just a difference that I want you to remember about our Savior His life wasn't taken from him by surprise, and his life wasn't taken from him by force. His life was taken from him by plan, and he obeyed it perfectly. This is our Lord and Savior. Jesus had known from childhood that he had his father's business to finish, and he wanted to go finish it. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 puts it this way. Luke 9, 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. That means... Now notice how it just refers to his ascension. 
But you know, for him to ascend, he first had to die, be buried. But when the time came that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. No, I don't want to go to Capernaum. No, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go. I want to go to Jerusalem. He was intent to do it, and he's showing us that here again in verse 4. He went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? He didn't stay in the garden of Gethsemane and hide, waiting for them to find him. He gave up his life in perfect obedience to his Father's will for you and me. Are we willing to give up our lives in perfect obedience to his will for us to serve him? We've taken his name in baptism. Will we live faithfully for him like he died faithfully for us? And so we have verses in the Bible that speak of giving our bodies a living sacrifice like he gave his body a dying sacrifice. Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Interesting sentence follows in that verse. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. Get to that in a minute. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. So there's 500 men. Let's just go ahead and pick a number. 500 men with lanterns and torches and swords, weapons, staves. They're coming into the garden. Jesus is in the garden. He's been praying. The other gospels tell us. He has finished his care of the apostles in John 14 through 17. And he goes and meets them. Because it says he knew. He knew where they were at all points. When he was praying in John 17, he knew how many yards they were, hundreds of yards, thousands of yards, from the Garden of Gethsemane. And he still only prayed for his apostles. And that should move you. He is not so distracted today in heaven. He is focused on us like never before. And it's a wonderful Savior we have, Jesus our Lord. But verse 4 tells us, knowing all things that should come upon him, he knows about the mob, he knows about the betrayal, he knows about the arrest and where he's going to be taken. And so he goes forth to meet them and asks them, Wow, what are you guys looking for in here? What are 500 of you in here with lanterns and torches? What are you looking for? Whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth because he was raised in Nazareth, though he was born in Bethlehem. But he was raised in Nazareth. So, because Jesus was a common name, in Hebrew it was Joshua. Joshua, from Hebrew to Greek to English, is Jesus. Joshua is a common name, named after that great successor to Moses. So in order to narrow down Joshua, you would say Joshua of Nazareth, or translated for us poor Englishmen, Jesus of Nazareth. You have two examples in the Bible, Acts chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 4, that show that Moses' successor when, his, when he's named in the New Testament, is Jesus. Even though you know he's Joshua, that's how you can use your King James Bible and figure out three languages. What a wonderful book we have. Amen. Don't read Acts 7 or Hebrews 4 too quickly, or you'll read Jesus and think Jesus of Nazareth when it's Joshua of the Old Testament. If you were from Nazareth, you could also be called a Nazarene. And so that fulfilled a prophecy in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 23 that Jesus being raised in Nazareth could be called a Nazarene to fulfill scripture. 
The Apostle Paul was once accused in court in Acts chapter 24 that he was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes because they were following Jesus of Nazareth. Did that mean the denomination of Nazarenes that's in America today was back then? No, no, no. The Nazarenes are only 100 years old or so in America. A Nazarene was a person from the little town of Nazareth. And please help anybody that you ever meet. A Nazarene and a Nazarite are not related in any sense at all. A Nazarite is a person that has taken upon themselves the vows of Numbers chapter 6. And a Nazarene is a person from Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. The Lord was either far enough away that they couldn't recognize him, or he hid himself from their vision for this exchange. Why wouldn't they have known that it was the Lord Jesus Christ? Judas knew him intimately, and Judas had just been with him a few hours earlier. But they didn't say, you're the one, when he said, whom seek ye? Because he's going to put them off guard a little bit and show that he's going to them willingly and that he could have hid from them easily. If he could hide from them while he's standing in front of them asking them, whom seek ye? He could have hid from them like he hid other men, like the Syrian army that Elisha once led into Samaria. He could have done something like that, but he didn't. And so he exposes himself to them and says, I am he. We do not need to alter his I am he to try to get something out of that that relates to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, I am. Because this I am he, he is not referring to what he did in John 8, 58 when he said before Abraham was, I am. That was obviously a reference to Exodus 3, 14, but here it is not. We've got a number of these similar statements by Jesus and others in this gospel that have nothing to do with Exodus 3.14, but simply, I'm the one you're looking for. Whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. I am Jesus of Nazareth. That's all that he's saying, so we don't get overly excited and try to spiritualize a verse beyond what the Lord intended for us. I love Exodus 3.14 and Exodus 6.3, and the fact that I am that I am equals Jehovah equals the name of our God. I can get very excited about that, but I want to get excited about it in the Bible where it belongs, not in a passage that isn't teaching that. All he is saying is, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Come and get me. Soon it's going to be, come and get me. How much more do you want? Because he's going to knock him down once. And then you, you want some more? I am he. This is, our, this is my Lord. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, as our brother Eric taught us this morning from Psalm 8 and other places, but he's also the Lamb of God, and he's going to go like a lamb. And a couple of years ago, we had the privilege of taking this congregation to a sheep farm nearby, and we got to see how that those large animals can be easily wrestled into shape to have their wool taken off them, and Jesus is going like a lamb here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. John does not record the betrayal kiss. And here's one of the timeline events. Let me intrigue you. Did Judas kiss Jesus before this question and answer session or after? Do you know what I say? I don't care. If you want help developing arguments that he did it before, I'll help you. If you want arguments developing, he did it afterwards, I'll help you. Because I don't care. I know that Judas came up to him and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. 
And I know Jesus said, friend, whence art thou from? What, what are you doing here? John decides to skip over that. John wants to go right what we have here, and we have something here that we don't have elsewhere, and that's Jesus saying, I am he, and blowing them backward. And let's, let's just enjoy that. But it tells us in a sentence, Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And that's a horrible thing. He sat with Jesus earlier that night at the Last Supper. Now he is standing with the murderous enemies. Is it possible for a Christian to do that? We have seen it many times, and we will see it many more times. It is very possible. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 tell us that through the deceitfulness of sin, it is possible to depart from the living God. And we don't want to do that. But it is possible. And Judas did it. Friend, wherefore art thou come? Jesus had treated Judas as a friend and more than a friend for the last three and a half years. Scripture is quite clear that Judas was no friend of Jesus Christ, but Jesus had treated him like a friend for three and a half years. Psalm 109 and the first 20 verses tell us where Judas will spend eternity because his sins will never be forgiven him. Consider the vile character of this man that sat at supper with Jesus just hours earlier. Consider the character of those that profess Jesus, are baptized, and then betray him in one way, shape, or form or another. Judas had taken sides. Notice what it says. He stood with them. He had taken sides. He wasn't standing with Jesus. He was standing with the mob. We're always taking sides. Every choice we make, we're taking sides. Are we siding with the world or are we siding with the Lord Jesus Christ? When we side with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to force us to stand with him against the world. Sometimes that's going to be family that doesn't love him. Sometimes that's going to be a job. Sometimes it's going to be the television. Sometimes it's going to be thoughts, friends. It's going to be a variety of things because when we befriend the world and stand with them, then we're the enemy of Jesus Christ and we're in the shoes of Judas Iscariot. Let it, let it sober us that this sentence is there. And let you remember that this sentence is there to remind you that when Jesus said, I am he, Judas went down as well. If you choose to oppose godliness, God and Satan will turn you over to impudence, which is what Judas has. All men have to take sides, and it's more than words. It's where do you stand? It's where do you stand? It says, and Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. You know what it says in Psalm 1? Standing in the counsel of the ungodly? Where are you standing today? Are you afraid to stand against family? Are you afraid to stand against friends? You chicken, lily-livered, little betraying apostate. How in the world do you think you're going to go to heaven? That's Judas Iscariot. Let's stand with Jesus Christ. Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 12, he that is... He that is not with me is against me. Let's always be with Jesus. The way he thinks, the way he views things, his worldview, his individual view, his view of charity, his view of brotherly love, his view of doctrine, everything. Let's be with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, 11 are going to leave him. One stands against him, and that's what he's got of 12 men. Let's be different as a church. You will face choices. The Lord will arrange for you to face choices. That's why he brings a sword in families. That's why I've mentioned family. 
Lord, help us to be faithful to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're either with him or you're against him. Every, every point that he's taught us, we want to be with him. As soon then as he had said unto them, verse 6, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. There was an immediate and instantaneous effect on the arresting mob by the words of Jesus Christ. The Bible starts with the power of his voice and ends with it. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, let there be light. And there was light. Revelation chapter 4, come up hither. What happened to John? He had heaven open to him. And he got to see chapter 4 and 5. And don't we like that? I think we had reference to that. Is one the glory of God and one the glory of Christ? Come up hither. Oh, what a voice. Come up hither. Do you know what that voice is going to do real soon? Come forth. 90 billion bodies are going to come forth. They're going to have to be put together again, cell by cell, by the power of the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says before God who quickeneth the dead, who quickeneth all things in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but that's going to have the power of the voice of Jesus Christ. Grandsons, whom seek ye? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. We want to arrest him, torture him, and kill him. I am he. And it blew 500 men backward on the ground. You like that? Yeah, I like that. Did he pull a gun? Did he have a force field? No, he had his word. What's one of my favorite sermons I've ever preached to this church? What a word is this? Right. What a word is this? And that's with an exclamation point in the Gospel of Luke. What a word is this? When Jesus speaks, things happen. Yeah. Not E.F. Hutton, the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Right. Right. Things happen. They went backward and fell to the ground. A divine blast by Jesus' word stopped his enemies in their tracks and hurled them backward. He could have done much more than he did. You know that, don't you? He could have hurled them all the way into hell from right there with one word. But he had a cup to drink. Don't forget, we've got five cups to get to. He had a cup to drink, and he did drink it. Their blindness is no different than conspiring to kill Lazarus for being resurrected. Why would you conspire to kill a man that was resurrected? That's in John 11 and John 12. If I got knocked backward, wouldn't you think twice when you got back up and he said, I am he again? Would you flinch? When he said, I, they didn't. And it's marvelous blindness. The, bl the blindness that God pulled over the nation of Israel is marvelous. And it's called marvelous in the Bible. It was, it was wild. They were so blind. They had dated prophecies pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and they couldn't see him. They had all those miracles and they couldn't see him. Just remember that when you're blind, you don't know what a lie is and you don't know what truth is. Lord, save us from such blindness. What are we blind about right now? What might you be blind about that you don't think is important, that I preach is important? What might be important that I don't preach is important? Lord, save us from blindness. Yes. But it's no different than Pharaoh, is it? After ten plagues, would you take your horse and chariot down into the Red Sea with water piled up on both sides like the Twin Towers? But he did, because the Lord had blinded them. They conspired to kill Jesus and Lazarus, even though they, dis they discussed among themselves at a council in John chapter 11 
this man has done a lot of great miracles that are obvious to the people, and if we don't stop it, they're all going to believe on him. Well, why don't you believe on him? Why do you want to kill him so that the people can't believe the miracles that he's doing that are great miracles? It's because blindness is terrible, and Lord save us from all blindness. Scornful men will attribute the glory or power of God to anything but God. You know, we have the means today to see things smaller than ever before and to see things farther away than ever before, but they will never give the God of glory credit for creating those things. They will give that credit to anything else but never God. And that's the nature of man, and it's our nature if it weren't for the grace of God saving us. Since Judas was standing with them, we may assume that he fell to the ground as well. Let the terrors of the Lord Jesus Christ seize upon the wicked in his coming voice when he speaks the next time. This little display of his power, while humiliated, knocked them down. What's going to happen next? His shout of victory that's coming soon will raise every dead body from the earth. He is coming with ten thousands of his angels to crush the ungodly and to convince all the ungodly of all their ungodly speeches that they have ungodly committed against him. They'll give an account for every word when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, according to Jude 1, verses 14 and 15, which Enoch knew when he was the seventh from Adam. It is the day of wrath, for mankind has never seen such wrath as is coming in the great day of wrath. Verse 7, Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, after you get back up on your feet, who is it you're looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. So we come to verse 8. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. Jesus answered for the second time, I am he, and I've told you that I am he. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one you have the warrant for. I'm the one that the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the rulers of the Jews, along with help from the Romans, have sent to get. I'm here. I'm the one. Take me. Well, let these 11 go their way. They don't have anything to do with this. They're not on your warrant. I'm on your warrant. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? He's the only one you've mentioned. I am he. Take me. I have told you that I am he. By his repeated clarification, he limited their search to himself alone and no others. This first person identification, testifying against himself, focused them on him. There was no need to collect a group of 12, interrogate them, and find out which one was Jesus of Nazareth because he came right out in front and said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Take me. And since I've saved you all the trouble of interrogating me and torturing twelve, torturing 11 and interrogating them, just let them go their way. Here I am. Cuff me. Well, he had one other thing to do in there before he got cuffed. Do you remember what it was? He had to patch up an ear, but that's not yet. So he wasn't cuffed quite yet. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. If your intentions and your warrant are specifically for me, then let these 11 depart. By a show of power to the band of men, he implied possible peril for touching them. His combination of boldness, identification, and power were used for the eleven. And it's beautiful. In his hour of greatest need, he chose the cross alone and worked for their freedom so he could go there alone and they could be free. They will drink his cup later in their lives, but they weren't going to drink it that night because he had a prophecy to fulfill that he had given in John 17, I will lose none of them because they have a ministry to, for me to unleash them on in 50 days after the day of Pentecost. They are going to turn this world upside down. 
I, I need to get them out of here because if Peter or a few more pull any more swords, we're going to have a skirmish on our hands and they could get killed tonight. If They can't get killed tonight. And that's what the next verse is about. You know, this is wonderful about the Lord. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that there is no temptation that has taken you but such as is common to man. Are you familiar with this verse? Right. Do you know what comes next? But, but God is faithful. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. These guys were not ready for an interrogation right now. No, no way. Little maids were going to cause them to, to betray the Lord Jesus, to deny the Lord Jesus Christ with cursing and oaths. So they weren't ready. The Lord Jesus Christ saved them. That verse is so precious. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man... But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. They weren't able. Jesus Christ delivered them, let them go their way, and they were glad to go their way. And they went with speed. They ran away. Verse 9, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, of them which thou gavest me I have lost none. This is where you can get so confused if, you don't, if you're not willing to rightly divide the word of God, rightly divide the word of truth. When Jesus, in verse 9, right here, John, explaining that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake, this, these are the words of Jesus, of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. Is that John 6? For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Be very careful. Is it John 6? Or is it John 17 and verse 12? To his Father in heaven, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The losing right here is not losing eternally. It's not losing to hell. It's losing life. It's losing ministry. It's losing apostleship. I've kept the apostles that you gave me so that they'll be able to do what you want them to do. And see, you've got to rightly divide Either it's John 17, 12, or it's John 6, and he's talking about some aspect of eternal life. He didn't lose anybody's eternal life that night, including Judas Iscariot. Right. He just lost him as an apostle, but that was by design and plan because he was a devil. Okay, I hope that that's so obvious to you that you don't want me to spend another sentence on it. Verse 9, the saying might be fulfilled, let these go their way so that I don't lose any more of them tonight. Yes, you could put apostasy in there, but primarily death or imprisonment because they have a work to do. And that work was their apostleship. It's a choice that we make. These words need not to be treated as metaphors for the plan and nature of our redemption. Do you know what we could do with these words right here? Let these go their way. If you seek me, let these go their way. We could go to Abraham and Isaac. Abraham has Isaac on the altar, and he raises the knife. And then God shows him a ram caught in a thicket. Oh, we could, we could juice this baby up. But I don't do that to you. Oh, I read about it, and I get nauseated in my office, and once in a while I share that nausea with you. But what is being said right here? Just factual, basic information. There's 12 of us standing here. I have asked you twice, who are you looking for? You have said, Jesus of Nazareth, 
I am he. I've told you that twice. Take me, cuff me, lead me away. Let these guys go their way. They're not on your warrant. They're not who you're looking for. You don't need them. And so Jesus did that. Verse 9 tells us why. To fulfill his commitment that he wouldn't lose any of those apostles that God had given him. And this prophecy had been given just a couple hours earlier in John 17 and verse 12. You don't have to go back to John 6 or you're going to run into some serious problems. You're going to have Judas being one of God's elect that loses his election. You're going to be all messed up. Don't go there. Just go to John 17. Why do you want... Okay, just some of the stuff... Oh, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do in interpretation. The next section, verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Luke chapter 22 tells us how many swords they had. How many swords did the group... Had two swords. They had two. Who do you expect would have one of them? Do you think Peter's going to give those two swords to somebody else in that band? No, Peter has a sword. He draws that sword. He's going to show the Lord that he's committed. Oh, let our zeal always be according to the God's commandments, not against them. Jesus had told Peter over and over, get thee behind me, Satan, to Peter, when Peter tried to resist him about giving his life up to the Jews in Matthew chapter 16. And now here Peter is again, doing what we sing the angels didn't do. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world, to deliver his soul. But Peter's trying to do that himself. He's going to fight this mob off, contrary to what Jesus Christ wanted him to do. And you know what would have happened? There were enough weapons there sent from the chief priests and the Pharisees that Peter would have got him and the other apostles killed. But Peter drew a sword, and in his eagerness to show his commitment to the Lord, the Lord lets him show zeal. Now, you know, really, that's more courage than denying Jesus at a fire when a maid asks you, aren't you from Galilee? Aren't you one of his disciples? Pull a sword with, we've said 500. What, what do you want to say to get Peter's courage down? 20? 50? So he's showing courage, and the Lord's letting him show wrong courage. Courage in the wrong thing. Courage against our Lord's redemptive plan. Has to correct him for it. And his correction here is, I have a cup to drink, Peter, and I've taught you that for three and a half years, and I'm going to drink that cup, so put your sword back in the sheath. In the other Gospels, it's he that taketh up the sword is going to die by the sword. And isn't that a wonderful statement about those Jews, about Roman Catholicism and the Inquisition and about Islam? That if you take up the sword in religious matters, you're going to die by the sword. And these men had come against Jesus with swords, and what did they die by? Roman swords. And what did Rome get overthrown by? Visigoth swords. And other swords. Napoleon swords. Yeah, Napoleon took the Pope captive and put him in a prison in France by the force of arms. The servant's name was Melchus. Isn't that interesting? You know the servant's name. Just like you learned the names of a couple of magicians for Pharaoh in 2 Timothy chapter 3. The servant's name was Melchus. John had a mind for detail, though we do not know much of value by the name here, but what if we lived at that time and we were as eager about truth as we are 
If we lived at that time and got the Gospel of John, would we want to check out if there was a man that worked for the, the chief priests and Pharisees whose name was Melchus, and we'd, right. we'd go interview him and say, would you mind telling me, are there any scars on your right ear? <laughs> these things are written, I'm just telling these things are written that ye might believe. We can't go check that out. But you know what I know? I know that there was a man that was a servant of the high priest and his name was Malchus and he had his right ear cut off and Jesus healed it right on the spot. After blowing the band down on their backs by his I am he, he then healed a man's ear, told his disciple to put his sword in a sheath, said, cuff me. But he had the power to heal. Do you think he had the power to undo cuffs? He had the power to blow 500 men backward on the ground. Did he have the power to resist their bands, their bonds? Yes. Peter went for a headshot on poor Malchus, pursuing a fatal blow and cut off his ear instead. We often criticize Peter, and we could hear for his ignorance, but let us admire his zeal on this, on this moment, because in just a, an hour or two, he's going to be denying his Savior. It's at this point that in Matthew, Jesus said, don't you know that I could ask my father right now for 12 legions of angels and have them? And that's why we sing that song, and we will sing it today. He could have called 10,000 angels. Put up thy sword into the sheath, Peter. Don't try to stop what I'm doing, because the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And those last words are what we'll take up in the second service. The second half of verse 11 of John 18. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Why are you trying to stop me from drinking the cup my Father gave me? I'm not calling on angels. Don't you know that I could have 12 legions at my disposal right now? 78,000, 72,000, depending on what historian you read about the number of soldiers in a legion of the Roman Empire. Put your sword up. The Father's given me a cup, and I'm going to drink it. And brethren, because he drank his cup, we get to drink from the cup of salvation, and we get to take a cup today. Amen. Because he went and drank his cup, and he went willingly. He went forth, verse 1. He went forth, verse 4. And he was ready to go to the cross to pay for our sins. This is your Savior. This is my Savior. This is the champion for our desperate case. And he won the day. They couldn't see that he was winning the day, but he won the day in a way that the Father had planned from the foundation of the world because Jesus was foreordained to die from the foundation of the world, and he fulfilled that perfect plan for us. We were in him. He saw his seed. He saw us. You and I, when we think about standing there and having the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have called the twelve. I'll save you from the embarrassment. I would have called the 12 legions of angels. But that's because I couldn't see my seed, and I can't see the joy that was set before me. The Bible tells us that there is joy that is set before us, and we will never be the loser by putting Christ first and denying ourselves in this world. There is a reward coming that will more than compensate for all that and put it entirely in the shade, even a hundredfold now that we can't even describe what's coming later. That's the far-sighted vision that we want of what is coming for us. And we want to see the rest of the seed and the whole family of God united in heaven. And that's where we're headed. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.